Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM himself, Wayne Davis, and over the length of this podcast, we'll be building a campaign from scratch that you can run for your own group. From setting to characters to scenarios, we'll put together everything you need to take the helm and run your own campaign. Right now, we're building a campaign for the Deadlands Classic System. Over the last month, we created a starting city of our own, and we populated it. We discussed how to create a character, which we did with our sample character, and began creating the opening scenarios for your cowpokes to run through. Last week, I even broke down some of the things a GM new to the Deadlands system would want to have their own notes on before starting a campaign. My suggestion at the time was to make your own notes separate of the books so that you wouldn't have to keep pausing your game to look up those things that'll be used frequently. However, as I stated at the time, how you choose to make your notes is completely up to you. And that, if you get nothing else out of what we talk about on this show, is the point. I can tell you how I'm going to do things, but you need to make sure you make the game yours. So... Always feel free to do whatever you want with the information provided. Okay, so this week I promised we'd get into a breakdown of the first session that I ran for my group, and we'd break down what worked, what didn't, and try to figure out how to fix the broken things so that you don't have the same problems I did. I also noted that 9 times out of 10, I'm probably what broke whatever in the game actually got broken. But, let's start my campaign recap at the beginning. Now, as a reminder... My players are Scott, who's playing a mentally unstable individual who likes to play with explosives. Aniston, playing a slightly less mentally unstable individual who also likes playing with explosives. Max, who's a gunslinger of sorts. Jim, who's playing a bounty hunter. And Gabe, who's playing a gambler who's also a pacifist. So, as we began, Scott, Gabe, and Aniston were each in the tavern in our lovely city of Triumph. Gabe was playing cards while Scott and Aniston were people-watching. Jim was down at the jail having a conversation with the marshal about potential bounties. And Max was... Well, remember when I said something about having an entertainment house? Yeah, he was, he was there. Yep, so much for a responsible use of the window dressing. But I decided, without saying anything, that Max would be out of the upcoming festivities if you remember what we created back in episode 3. The conversation between Jim and the marshal was brief, as the marshal didn't have any bounties available, but he did suggest that Jim check back in the morning, as any rider with bounties would be through sometime after sunrise. While they were talking, they both noticed six men on horseback riding into town, and both the marshal and Jim noted that they pulled up in front of the tavern. As the men dismounted, I had Jim make a roll to see if he noticed two of the men posting up on either side of the tavern entrance, and he rolled well enough that he not only knew that, but he also picked up on the fact that the two men had their long guns at what is known as port arms. Google that term if you're curious. I also rolled for the marshal, whom I created as I would have created a regular character because I wanted him to be special from regular NPCs. And anyway, he noticed exactly what Jim had done. He and Jim then headed towards the tavern and they grabbed the bouncer from the entertainment house along the way. The bouncer grabbed a shotgun that I noted was bigger than he is, which was designed to portray a sense of intimidation, but it wound up catching a few chuckles from the group. See what I mean about me being the one who breaks things? As Jim, the marshal, and the bouncer got close to the tavern, I paused that action and returned to the inside of the tavern. 
So as the other four of our new arrivals made their way into the tavern, I had all three players make rolls to see how much they could figure out based on what they saw. For the record, I told them that the four men entered the tavern, then slowly spread themselves out so that there was one man basically covering each wall of the tavern. The players got that for free. What they got by making their rolls, which they did, was that they noticed that a couple of the guys were fidgety, that they all seemed to have their sidearms ready to be drawn, and I even think I said that one of them had his hand on his pistol but was trying to play it cool. So we're about to have the fun get started, and here's a note for new GMs. In a situation like the one I'm getting ready to get into, with some of the characters inside the tavern and some outside, you have to make a decision. Do you have an initiative test that includes everyone, or do you split the scenario in half, with the outside group being one scenario and the inside group being another? I decided to split the group. Seemed fair to me. I also have to admit that I can't remember which group went first, so I'm going to go with the one that I think went first, and my group will correct me at the next game night, I'm sure. So... Outside the tavern, Jim rode up on the two men posted outside. He decided to quickly grab his horse and do this so that he could draw their attention to him. The plan was that while he did that, the marshal and the bouncer could double back behind the tavern, come up on the sides, and catch these two guys unaware. I made rolls for the four that I was responsible for, I had Jim make his rolls, and needless to say, the plan worked out just like we figured it with the two doormen surrendering to the marshal. Once we'd gotten to that point, I again paused the action to head back inside. At this point, it was time for the leader of this little band to draw his pistol and announce the stick up, and the other three did the same. However, rather than the standoff I had anticipated, Scott did something I had not anticipated, and I have to admit it was pretty cool. See, he has overall, which gives him the ability to you know, pretty much speak with something close to authority. I believe it might also be the voice. But anyway, rather than use it to give out orders, he decided to use it to convince the leader to holster his pistol and join him for a drink. I had Scott make his roll. I made the roll for the leader, and I used the gunslinger stats from the player's guide. Needless to say, Scott's roll worked, and the leader holstered his pistol and reluctantly joined him for a drink. One by one, Gabe and Aniston convinced the others to do the same, holster the pistols, and stand down. As the final one holstered his pistol, since I realized there wasn't going to be any fighting going on, I decided to bring the groups back together. The marshal and Jim ordered all the bad guys out of the tavern with their hands up, which they did. Once outside, the marshal told them to leave their weapons behind and ride out of town, telling them that if he saw them again, he would kill them. The bad guys complied and rode out of town towards the west. The group then went back to doing just what they'd been doing before this all went down, and the marshal came into the tavern for a drink. There was conversation and interaction between the marshal and the various group members, which was eventually broken up by someone coming in and noting that the bad guys had actually curled back and headed east, going behind the town to do it. The marshal tasked the players with heading east to see if they could find a camp of some sort, and if there was one, bring the bad guys back in so they could be arrested and prosecuted. Now... Jim and Scott's characters knew each other as the game began, but the other three didn't know each other or Jim or Scott's characters when we started. So, between the conversations had after the incident and a bit of discussion with the marshal, these five, because Max finally came to the tavern to see what was up, agreed to head out and see what they could find. They grabbed lanterns, their weapons, and their mounts and headed east. I had to make several checks to see if they could pick up where the group had gone since it was very dark by this point and I knew tracking would be difficult. However, I made a roll of my own because I was curious as to how shaken this group would be and whether or not they'd be stupid enough to have an open campfire going. I failed and therefore 
They did. That made it easy for the group to find them, and they rather smartly decided to sneak up on the group. They'd stopped short of where they saw the fire, secured their mounts, and attempted to use the cover of darkness to hide in. They succeeded, after a number of rolls, and were able to take the group without a shot being fired. They secured their prize, then looted the camp for anything of value. While doing so, they found a crumpled bounty poster for the group, which meant they'd be getting more out of that deal than they had originally intended. I forgot to write it down, but I think I made it for 200 bucks each. Anyway, they led the men and their horses back to Triumph, then met with the marshal at the jail. They secured the men in the cells and were allowed to keep and sell the horses if they chose, which of course they did. I'll let you do the math on that, but they got a pretty nice price for what they sold. The marshal did tell Jim the group would have to wait until morning to get their bounty, as he'd have to wait for the bank to open so he could get the cash. However, he encouraged them to use the accommodations they'd already set up for the night and to enjoy themselves in the tavern. They did, and we role-played the group getting to know each other a bit better over drinks while Gabe gambled some more and made a bit more pocket cash. In the morning, Jim met up with the marshal, who showed him a bounty poster for the group that promised, I think it was $100 more per head than the poster Jim had shown the night before. Since I decided from the beginning, and we've talked about this, that the marshal is an honest man, he agreed to pay the increased amount and accompanied Jim to the bank to get the cash. Jim inquired about bounties, but the marshal had none at the moment, but he again encouraged the group to stick around and see if any opportunities presented themselves. Before they could get too settled, the mayor approached the group and asked them to look into something at his mine. I played it off like the mayor felt like his miners were either seeing things or were just a bit loco, but he reported that the miners felt like they were in danger, and since they were refusing to work, his bottom line was beginning to get impacted. He hired the group for the amounts we detailed when we set the scenario up to go to the mines and see what was up, then, quote, spread the word that the mines were safe, end quote. They agreed and mounted up for the short ride out to the mine. Once there, they met up with the mine foreman who detailed the issues that had been reported over the past few weeks. He, he fully admitted that he hadn't seen or heard anything weird, but he'd been unable to convince his men to go back to work, and that meant that two-thirds of one of the mines was now shut down and not being worked. He provided the group with lights and escorted them to the barricade blocking the part of the mine that was being used from the portions that weren't. The foreman and his group spoke throughout this, and it was becoming apparent to the group that the foreman wasn't necessarily behind the company line of there being nothing in there, but he also wasn't going to go against his boss and risk his job. So, once they were alone, they started their search of the mine. As they made their way through, I described either the complete silence of the mine, or the drip dripping of water, or other sounds that I was using to put them on edge. I also made it a point to make random rolls from time to time. The truth is that the rolls really didn't mean anything. I was using them to see what kind of reactions I could get from my group, especially the less experienced members. Once the group got to the part of the mine I had decided a wall walker would be in, I had Scott make a roll to see if he heard anything. He did, and I described the scratching the walker was making, though I noted nobody could figure out where it was coming from. But the walker eventually made his appearance and missed his attack. Once he missed, it was pretty much over as the group blasted it dead. And being a smart bunch, they realized they should check the rest of the blocked-off part of the mine to make sure there wasn't anything else that could go back to haunt them later. After a bit more exploring, they ran into the other wall walker, and that went about as quickly as the first one did. They finished their check, then dragged both carcasses to the barricade. They suggested that the worker there go get the foreman, and when they showed him what they'd killed, he was quite surprised, but also relieved. He agreed to inform the mayor that they dealt with the issue, and the group, true to their word, told the miners that they'd taken care of the problem. And with that, they returned to town. Now, 
this first night of gaming continued, but it occurs to me that we haven't yet built this part of the scenario. So I'm going to pause the recap to continue building the campaign. And before we do that, let's discuss how I felt the game worked to this point. I really feel like my players got into what I built. I didn't feel the need to try to convince them to get into the adventure, as they each found their own reasons for doing whatever needed to be done, and I didn't have to offer up the maximum amount of money that I thought I might have to. True, I probably let them have more money and items than I should have, because I let them sell the horses, the saddles, and the other items they decided to sell, but really, coming up with a reason to keep them from that stuff was hard and would have probably caused more arguments than it would have been worth. So. To this point in the campaign, I've managed to not break anything yet. Yay me! But we're not done yet. We have more campaign to build and more campaign breakdowns for me to discuss. So let's get to building, shall we? Refer back to episode 3 if you're curious as to exactly where we left off, though where we left off in the recap should be about equal. With the group having successfully completed another mission, I tossed a green chip into the box so that they'd have something special to maybe draw next time. The group also now has the rest of the evening, in theory, to themselves. It should be getting into early to mid-afternoon by this point, depending on how long it took your group to get organized in the morning and how long it took them to resolve the mine issue. Also, if you decided to have more creatures in the mine, it would most certainly take longer, so adjust as you need to. I would suggest that this downtime is a good time for the group to rest and recuperate, especially if they took any wounds during their adventures to this point. You can also use it to present opportunity for them to interact with other members of the town. Whatever you decide to do, we don't have anything else pressing until the next morning. In fact, the characters will be approached by someone either while they're eating breakfast or as they're making their way out of the restaurant who tells them the marshal needs to see them. Make it seem exceptionally urgent if you need to so that they don't put this off. Trust me, as we build this, time will be of the essence, or at least we want them to believe that time is of the essence. Also, whenever the characters are walking down the street during daylight hours, have them be greeted by different people from time to time. Don't do a lot of it, but make it just enough so that it appears they're starting to make a good name for themselves here. Unless, of course, they're intentionally not making a good name for themselves. In that case, have people curse under their breath and spit in their general direction. When they get to the jail, the marshal will ask that they pull up a seat. He explains to them that late last night, or very early this morning, depending on how you want to play it, a woman came into town looking for her son and his wife. She reports that they'd been making their way to Santa Fe and were on the trail from Dodge City that would have taken them through Triumph. The kids, which would be how she'd refer to them, were headed to Santa Fe because the daughter-in-law had family there. Someone had just passed away and was leaving her a nice inheritance, which is why they decided to pack up anything worth traveling with and headed out from Topeka. Now, they'd been sending the woman telegraph messages from every town along the way with a telegraph, but she hadn't heard anything from them in about four or five days. The marshal's already done the footwork in Triumph. He's checked with the mayor, the owner of the general store, and the restaurant and the tavern to see if anybody had seen these two young folks. Elijah at the general store reported he'd seen him about four days ago, and based on what he told the marshal, it's thought they were in town for about an hour, give or take a bit. While Triumph doesn't have a telegraph, the town about a day east of them does, and if you head about two towns west, they've got one. Doing the math, the marshal estimates that either a telegraph or a rider delivering a message should have come through here in the past couple of days, and neither one of those things has happened. So, he's running with the theory that something has happened to the family. 
He provides what information he has. The couple are Alexander and Constance Brubaker. He's 23, she's 16. They also have a two-year-old son, Isaac, and a one-year-old daughter, Emily. And before you say anything about Constance's age, if you look at the history of the time, getting married at 14 and having kids was neither unusual nor taboo at that time. Whether we agree with it now or not, I'm using history as a part of my game setup. Now, if the age thing bothers you, make her older. No problem. The marshal will also note that the wagon they were driving was a bit older, but according to reports, it seemed like it was in pretty good shape. He'll also add that if they're headed for the Santa Fe Trail, which they should be, they'd have to go through the town of Buzzard's Peak, and they would have hit that a couple of days ago. The next town past that would be the one with the telegraph. With all of this, he lays out what the woman is offering. If the family's okay, but stranded due to the wagon or horse issues, she's offering $250 for getting them fixed and back on the road. She's also offering to pay any expenses incurred by the group in doing so. If the family has been taken by kidnappers, she's refusing to negotiate. Instead, she offers $200 a head for anyone they take out to facilitate the safe return of her family. Anything else will be handled on an as-needed basis. The marshal will also note that she left a stack of bills with him to pay out. He counts out about $10,000. I think I might have actually done less than that. You can do less than that if you want, but it needs to be an impressively large amount of money. And yes, if your group gets suspicious about this, that's exactly the point. How much you want to give them moving forward is up to you, but you'll need to know everything before you can do that. So let's keep building. Once the group and the marshal have discussed whatever they feel needs to be discussed, the group should want to mount up and go. After all, it's not even mid-morning yet, and with Buzzard's Peak being about a two-day ride, if they get going now, they'll get the first day out of the way. For the record, I've estimated that the ride is two days by wagon, but about a day and a half on horseback. But since the group will be going slower because they're searching for any clues about the missing family, they'll lose that half day, so the overall trip will take two days. So your group will now be westward bound. I realize you probably weren't expecting the group to leave Triumph so soon, so if you want to do a few more short encounters here before you actually get into this big one, feel free to do so. You could have pickpockets, snake oil salesmen, or whatever kind of low-level mayhem you want. I would just suggest you not overdo it because this encounter is meant to be the first real challenge to your players. And besides, they're coming back to Triumph for more adventures, I promise. For me, the two-day trip is going to be uneventful. I plan to have a few folks passing the group headed east from time to time, but other than basic chit-chat, I don't plan on them finding anything or doing anything major during this run. Now, with it being a two-day trip, this means they're going to have to camp out for a night. If you're looking to drop something on your group, this would be an interesting point in which to do it. And for the record, there's all kinds of things you can drop on them. Wild animals, groups of bandits, walking dead. I mean, if you wanted to mess with them, the world is your oyster in this instance. Or you could just have a big rainstorm. That'd be fun, especially since they won't probably have any sort of tent or covered wagon. I'm not doing any of those things because I want to get the group to Buzzard's Peak at 100%. They'll reach Buzzard's Peak right at dusk on day two. Before we go further, since I also created Buzzard's Peak, let's take a look at it. And feel free to change anything about it that you'd like, including the name. Buzzard's Peak is the stereotypical one-horse town. Much like Triumph, it's got one road, and it's the road that leads straight to the Santa Fe Trail. Unlike Triumph, it's only got five buildings standing. There are a few decaying and partially destroyed buildings, but five are up and running, and they are the general store, blacksmith, hotel, restaurant, and a very small jail. Buzzard's Peak was established a few years back by Daniel Buzzard Smith, who had the idea of 
picking off the last of the money folks had before they hit the Santa Fe Trail. Buzzard is the mayor, town marshal, and owner of the general store. His brother Billy is the blacksmith. Billy and his wife also own the restaurant, while Buzzard and Billy's sister Eunice, or Eunice, however you want to say it, owns and runs the hotel. Their prices are a bit higher than other areas, like Triumph, but they have the advantage of being where they are in respect to the trail. It's totally possible that one or more of your PCs will be aware of Buzzard's Peak and might even know some of this information, which is why I'm providing it to you here. One other note, the hotel has a bar on the ground floor. It's not as big or as nice as the one in Triumph, but if you're looking to get hammered, it will work. As the group rides into town, the first thing that they notice, and they shouldn't have to roll for this, is that there are no lights lit in town. Since it's dusk, someone should have lit a light somewhere, because you don't want to wait for it to get completely dark to try to find the lamp. There's nothing. The second thing they notice, and thanks to the dark, you can have them roll for this, is that there are no horses in town. None. They don't hear any. They don't smell any. They don't see or smell horse manure. First building they run into is the blacksmith shop. Fires are dead and they are cold. What that tells them is that there's been no smithing going on here for a bit. That should put them on edge. Next up is the restaurant. They can find a lamp to light, but when they do, they realize the place is empty. Probably has been for days. They find dirty dishes piled up in the sink and they can smell some food that has rotted, but there's no sign of anything living here or anything having happened here. They'll find a stairwell behind the restaurant that goes upstairs. For the record, this is where the Smith family lives. As they check the room, they realize everything's neat and tidy. Like the beds have been made for the day and everything had been organized, but nobody ever came back to it. Nothing appears to be missing at first, but they will notice that there's no weapons, no ammo, and no jewelry. They'll find spots where that type of stuff should be, but they won't find the items. The hotel's next. It's nothing, nobody. It's also obvious that nobody has checked in or out because the rooms are all empty. They will notice that the cash box is empty, but they're not going to be sure if it means somebody stole the money or if it was just empty because they had no renters. Let's head over to the general store. No money in the till, no weapons, no ammo. They can find the spots the stuff should be in, and by the way things look, stuff was taken. In fact, if they take a minute to do a quick inventory, they'll find out that anything that had resale value has been taken out of here. It's also painfully obvious that they took care to not trash the place in the process. The last stop is the jail. You know when you get one of those feelings that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Yeah, everybody in the group should be getting that right about now. It'll get worse when they pick up on the stench. Play it how you will, but the stench is that of death and a lot of it. We don't need to get into a whole lot of detail, but Buzzard, Billy, Billy's wife, and Eunice are dead in the jail. I'll let you decide how you want to describe it, because I know some folks like graphic descriptions and others don't. My group's a bit older and tends to like horror movies, so I'm going to go with a more graphic description, and that's what I'm going to do. If you don't want to do that, that's totally fine. For the record, there are no weapons in the jail, and the manacles or handcuffs have also been taken. So, the group needs to regroup and figure out what's next. Before we get to that, you as the GM need to remember where the group tied off their horses, because that's going to matter as we continue. If they tied them up in the open, this next part will happen where they can see. If they tied them off behind one of the buildings, they'll hear the horses but won't actually see what's going on until or unless they go to check on things. Anyway, continuing on. As they leave the jail, they notice four figures messing with their horses. Now, this isn't even a debate. As soon as the group yells or approaches, these four draw weapons and fire. 
do your thing, run the combat. Once it's done, give everybody a white chip. They'll also be able to lift two pistols from each body, a decent knife, and a dozen rounds. They can also find money if you want. I was thinking 50 bucks in various denominations. At that point, they're going to have to figure out where these guys came from. After all, if they check, they don't see any extra horses. And if they check out further, they definitely don't see any. Since there were no other buildings to check, and since the ruined buildings wouldn't support anyone staying inside them, they had to come from outside of town. Now, there's not really anything to the east, the south, or the west, because they'd have needed horses to get from any semi-civilized place to here. By default, that leaves the north. If they ride out a bit, even in the dark, it's obvious that 20 minutes or so to the north are some hills that will eventually take you into the Rocky Mountains. There's also a bunch of trees. So if you're looking for cover, you got it. So their goal should be to head north. Now, the thought for layout is this. There is a road that runs to the north, but it sort of snakes around the hills to avoid the mountain. For the group, though, that won't be too much of a problem because they're going to be noticed probably before they have to think much more. See, the idea is to have some lookouts up in the trees about 30 feet or so from the road and situated about 75 yards apart. They're going to be in kind of a deer stand situation. That way they can see anyone that looks like they're heading into the woods and try to stop them before they get too close. The reason for that is because about a quarter mile off the road, there's a cave that contains our missing family along with a bunch of bad guys. So how you'd like to play that is up to you. Yeah, I know, you're thinking I'm a jerk for leaving you hanging on like this. But you know me, I'm not really going to do that. What I'm going to do is finish the debriefing from my first session and lay out how my group did it. That way you can steal some of my ideas. First things first, we need to go all the way back to the end of the mine thing. My group decided to head to the tavern, and Jim decided on his own to head to the marshal's office to see if bounties had come in. Since he was doing that, I decided to move up the next scenario since I know Jim and I knew he'd be thinking conspiracies anyway. Now, if I remember correctly, the rest of the group went with Jim, which I think was because they wanted to taunt the prisoners a bit, but I could be remembering that wrong and I don't have my game notes in front of me. That's my bad. Regardless, they were all there when the meeting went down. The marshal laid it out pretty much the same way I explained it above and, as expected, Jim, Gabe, and Scott smelled a rat well before I finished. Now, if you'll think back to when I laid this out, I didn't say what had happened to the woman who'd reported all this to the marshal. The truth is that I really hadn't thought about it at the time. But not having her someplace worked to build tension and mistrust of her when I did announce she'd immediately headed back to Dodge City. The group made it a point to note how unusual it was that she'd apparently followed the family from Topeka and had made a six-day ride, which would make it hard to explain why she'd not gotten a telegram in four days, to just turn around and do it again. So, here's the very first place that I sort of broke the game a bit. Once my group had started getting a bit paranoid about what was going on, I decided to play into it. That should have worked easily, except I didn't think to account for that when I set up distances and things, so I laid out explanations that would do nothing else but feed paranoia. I guess that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I kind of feel like it might have been. Anyway, the group fully distrusts this woman, especially when it occurs to them that she's offering to pay them to execute people she theoretically shouldn't even know have her family. This also has them questioning whether or not the money she's left is real or fake, and the marshal says he'll get it checked out as soon as he can. After much debate, they agreed that whether they believed the woman or not, they do know these people exist, and they feel a bit of an obligation to check on them. If it's nothing, they can escort them to Santa Fe and make sure they get there okay. If it's something... Well, they'll, they'll deal with it. So they decide to head out, even though it's about afternoon at this point. 
Also remember that my group of five have three horses and two mules, which means they're going to go a bit slower than they should be. But they figured out how to make it work by having Jim, Gabe, or Max, who are riding horses, ride fast and double back to search, thereby keeping the other two moving at a steady pace. With that plan in mind, I decided they would do it in two days, and they'd get to Buzzard's Peak by mid-afternoon on the day in question. They got to town, and I ran it exactly like I described it before. Since they were already of a mind that things were wrong, they chose to hide the horses when they got to town. I also had to make a slight adjustment to how they found the bodies because of Scott's ability. Rather than the stench of death, I had the dead scream out to him from the jail. They found the bodies, and Scott decided he wanted to use his ability to sit with them and try to figure out exactly what happened, which by the rules he could do. However, that meant he was going to have to stay in the jail with the bodies all night. Yeah. So the rest of the group set up at the hotel, rotating their way out to keep a very close eye on the jail. By morning, he'd gotten his answers, and they were not pretty. Short form is this. A group of men had brought a wagon and some horses into town. They took a man and a woman out of the wagon into the hotel. They then tortured the man while, let's just say, they weren't being very gentlemanly with the woman. After all, I'm trying very hard to keep this show PG-rated. By this point, morning had arrived, and the rest of the group came to check on him. They stepped around back to check the horses and have a conversation, and when they came back around, they noticed four men coming out of the hotel with liquor in their hands. Played it out very much the same way as I'd laid it out to you earlier. In a very wise move, though, they kept one alive. He was able to confirm what Scott had gotten from the dead, and they decided that their new prisoner was going to help them get to the cave without being disturbed. Before they had a chance to do that, a few more men showed up, and the group had to deal with them. Once that was done, they had their prisoner lead them to the road and point out where the access was that would get them to the cave. But what about the lookouts? Now, my group's pretty smart, and they insisted that their new friend take them a route that would avoid them being seen. We did all the roles, and with some talents in the players, they were able to pull it off. The prisoner also noted that the bad guy had said something about rigging the cave with explosives and something about she set us up. One of those things concerned them, and the other one pretty much confirmed what they already knew. I had them make rolls to get across the road into the cave entrance without being noticed, and of course, they succeeded. This first session ended with the group at the cave entrance, and that is where we'll pick up next week. As a matter of fact, next week, we'll get back to creating as I lay out what my original notes for the adventure had. Once we do that for a good 20 minutes or so, I'll lay out what happened with our second night of gaming. Trust me. Things are about to get broken. As we wrap up today, I want to encourage you to check out my other podcast, Roleplaying History. That's the show where we take a game, system, creator, or other topic from tabletop roleplaying games and do a deep dive into its history. This week, we're looking at the D&D settings of Spelljammer and Dragonlance. And even though I thought I knew them well, I learned a lot doing this show. Roleplaying History is available wherever you get your podcasts. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out if you need royalty-free or license-free music for your project. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out at Facebook, Bad GM Productions, Twitter, Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions, Twitch, Bad GM, and email badgmproductions at gmail.com. Next week, we figure out what to do with this gang, this cave, and this family, and I'll show you how my group handle it. I'm looking forward to seeing you then, and I promise we'll have next week's show out on time. Sorry about that delay this week, folks. 
for Bad GM's campaign build-along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis. Sayonara. <laughs>